Good morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to Galatians 5, 22 and 23, as we continue a study in the fruit of God's Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, as we look at the fruit of the Spirit, 10 weeks looking at nine fruit, we pray, Lord, you would impress upon our hearts one or two or three that you would particularly want each one of us to work on, empowered by your Spirit, to see growth, to see fruit being developed within us. We know that these are by your Spirit. We cannot do it on our own, and so we ask, Lord, that you would empower us, encourage us to take the next step in our relationship with your Son, Jesus Christ. Develop these fruit within us, we ask, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. That's a rather famous statement. It's been attributed to a number of people. I think very likely it goes back to 1950 to Bob Pierce, who became the founder and first president, 1950 to 1967, of World Vision. Now, if you know anything about World Vision during the early days, it not only was a Christian relief and education organization like it is today, but because of Bob's heart, it was also exceptionally evangelistic. Now, Bob would die in 1978. He would die of leukemia, a very slow and painful death in his case. Towards the end of his earthly life, he had occasion to travel to Indonesia. He went to a remote village. And while he was in that remote village, <coughs> he saw a young girl, probably mid-teenage girl. She was lying on a bamboo mat down by the river. It was clear that she was in the last days or hours of her life, that she was terminally ill. It broke Bob's heart. He turned to one of the World Vision workers. He said, why is she not in one of our hospitals? Of course we would not charge her. Why is she not getting care? The worker said, oh, she was. But she desired to come down to a familiar place by the river where the breeze blows, knowing that it's towards the end of her life, we brought her down here. Bob himself was near death. His body reeked and ravaged by leukemia. He got down on his knees in the mud. He took this young girl's hand and he stroked it as he choked back tears. Using a translator, he shared salvation by faith with Jesus Christ, faith in Jesus Christ with her. I don't know if she accepted Christ or not, but I know at the end of that, she did make this statement, if I could only sleep, if I could only just sleep. Her body was so ravaged by disease, she was so infected that she was unable to sleep at night, and she couldn't sleep in the day. It had been that way for many days. Bob's heart broke. 
he wept openly. Then he reached in his jacket pocket and he pulled out a vial of pills. They were his own prescription pills for sleeping. He was also quite ill. He gave them to the world vision director of the area. He gave him specific instructions on how to give her pills and when so that she might sleep. He was at least 10 days away from anywhere that could resupply him. For Bob, that meant that he would not sleep for 10 days. He would have unceasing pain for 10 days because he gave his pills to this young girl. That's love. Love is sacrificial. It's the first fruit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's agape. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. As you and I begin, we come to the first major word, the fruit of the Spirit. That word fruit, karpos, actually refers to regular fruit that might be harvested in Israel. Today, Israel is a fruit and vegetable and flower-bearing country. The North Galilee is incredible. It is so productive. And there you'll have apple orchards, fig orchards, and pineapple groves. That's fruit. And you think about how fruit is dependent on God and for maximum effect dependent on man, the farmer. It's dependent on God. God created the seeds. God created the ground. God hung the sun in the sky to warm. He sends the rains. Without God, <coughs> there will be no fruit. But it also, for maximum benefit, depends upon the farmer. She or he will plant the seed, will plow, will weed, will add extra water, will harvest. And that's the way the fruit of the Spirit is. It's dependent on the Spirit of God. The only people who will have the fruit of the Spirit developed within them have already given their lives to the Lord through faith in Jesus Christ, his death as a payment of our sin. As we confess and believe in him and the power of his spirit, we begin to turn. It's the fruit of the spirit of God for believers. But it's not just a work of God. It is first and foremost a work of God. But there's also the farmer aspect. That's you, that's me. We need to daily ask God to build this fruit within us, to develop this fruit within us, to begin to transform, to begin to change, to confess our sins and, and to take those steps of accountability, memorizing scripture and citing them at the critical moments. We need a work of God. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But he also expects you and I to participate. Now, if you think about the fruit of the Spirit... The context of Genesis 5, 22 and 23 actually is preceded by the works of the flesh. Genesis 5, 19 
to 21. Now the works of the flesh, there will be 15 of them. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, which is kind of like hate, strife, which is division, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now before we get to the fruit of the Spirit, we see the works of the flesh, 15 of them. And I wonder, as you and I read those 15, <coughs> which work of the flesh would God want you, want me to attack? Oh, it's different for all of us. I doubt we can work on all 15 at uh, the same time. And there might be some of those that God has already done a great work in your life and, and you've seen a fair amount of victory. But there might be a few, maybe one or two rising to the top. And as you and I develop one or two fruit in our life, maybe there's one or two works of the flesh and they work together and we put down the works of the flesh empowered by God's Spirit and we begin to develop, empowered by God's Spirit, the works of the Spirit. Now think about these works of the flesh. Eight of them, eight of the 15, are interpersonal. <coughs> Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. As Christ followers, you and I know that we are to obey the Word of God. We believe at Highland that the Word of God is inerrant without error, that it is profitable, and it's to change our lives, to transform our lives. <coughs> and yet, we see that even having accepted Christ, we still might have some of the works of the flesh. Now we pursue the word of God. We pursue the morality of God. We pursue the ethics of God. We don't want to compromise in any of these areas. And yet it's not just enough that you and I obey the word of God. We need to do it with the right attitudes. First, worshipful for the Lord. It's an act of worship on our part. But we want the right spirit. Who are the Christ followers you and I most admire? Probably they're individuals who don't compromise the word of God, who don't compromise ethics and morality, who seek to live out as an act of worship God's word, and yet do so in a gracious way, not with enmity, not with strife, not with fits of anger, not in a sinful way, putting on the works of the flesh. So eight of the 15 have to do with our relationships. And it's not just that we don't compromise, it's that we don't compromise with a God-centered, God-honoring spirit. Four of the works of the flesh have to do with sexual sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, orgies. 
God desires for his people to honor him, to live lives of purity. Two of them, very surprisingly, had to do with idolatry, idolatry and sorcery. And we would say, wow, out of 15, eight are relationship-oriented, and only two had to do with idolatry. And those who are steeped in the Old Testament and the New Testament know full well that the number one sin in the Bible is idolatry. In fact, the first two commandments of the Ten Commandments have to do with idolatry. Why only two out of 15? Well, I would submit this. First, Paul knows that we have lots of other passages that address idolatry. But second, every sin you and I commit is idolatry. Every single sin. Because idolatry is putting something or someone, an attitude, an action, a thought, a motive, an inactivity, above obedience to God. And when we put something or an action or an attitude, anything above our relationship with the Lord, that's idolatry. So really, we could say all 15 of the works of the flesh are idolatry. In contrast to the 15 works of the flesh, God gives us nine works of the Spirit. Love, that's the one we'll look at today, agape. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now we talked a little bit about this last week when I did an overview of the fruit. And we remember that Paul has a number of words that he could have chosen for love. He could have chosen aros, which is romantic love, what God intends for a husband-wife marriage relationship. He could have chosen storhe. That's the love we have within a family. It's deep and strong. He could have chosen Philadelphia or phileo love, that's love that we express towards those we're not related to. But instead, he chose agape. Agape love is an unusual word outside the Bible, very prevalent in Scripture, but not so much outside of Scripture because the standards were too high. It has an emotional side. It has an intellectual side, but it is a commitment. I think of the German-Dutch theologian of the 15th century, Thomas Akempis, who said, agape love is really work in motion. That's what it is. It's doing, it's acting on behalf of another. We see it so well in the most famous verse of Scripture, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That's agape. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. 1 John 3.16 says this. This is how we know what love, this is how we know what agape is. Christ Jesus laid down his life for us. This is, this is much more than sentimentality. This is action. This is commitment. This is love with staying power. Costly love. But who exactly 
am I to love? Surely God would not want me to love somebody who votes differently than I do. Surely God would not want me to love somebody who acts differently than I do or has different values than I do. Surely God's not calling me to have that kind of love. And yet he is. Last week we looked at Matthew twenty-two thirty-five to 40. I want to read it again. A lawyer came up to Jesus to test him. The lawyer said, which is the greatest commandment? And Jesus said, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the great commandment. And the second is likened unto the first. Love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. According to Jesus, we could summarize the entire Old Testament law. The nomos, the Torah. We can summarize all of the prophetic teachings by loving God preeminently and loving man secondarily. Let's start with love for God. We're in church. This is a group who loves God, and many of you do so well. Thank you for your model. But it is easier to love God when things are going well than when things are going hard. Isn't that true? And sometimes when things are going particularly difficult, I've heard some well-meaning Christ followers, some here even at Highland, say something like this. Go ahead and be disappointed with God. Go ahead and be angry with God. He can take it. Well, the second part of that is true. He can take it. But I think the first part is particularly bad information. It's a bad suggestion. In fact, I think it's wrong. If you and I think we have the right to be disappointed with God and angry with God, Think about the implications of that. We are essentially saying that we have the right to be a judge over God. That's heretical. And that God must not be holy, holy, holy. And God must not be omniscient, all-knowing. He must not be omnipotent, all-powerful. He must not be perfect. Because if we have the right to be disappointed with God and angry with God, the implication is somehow God is messed up and we're calling him on it. And that is a dangerous place to be. Now you might push back. You might say, well, there are a few biblical examples of individuals who are disappointed with God or, or angry with God, maybe Habakkuk. Or Job's wife. And I would say this. Yes, you will find historical examples that tell us descriptively what happened. But that doesn't mean it's prescriptive. Go and do likewise. Consider Job's wife for a moment. In Job chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. <coughs> things used to be going well. They had lots of kids, lots of money, lots of respect. And, and you remember... God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him. 
And Satan said, give me a break. Man, you put a silver spoon in the guy's mouth. But let me smite him. Let me take some of what you've given him away and he will curse you to your face. And so God allowed Satan. He removed his hand of protection, not to the point of costing Job his life, and Satan began to afflict Job. And his children died. I can't even imagine. And he lost his wealth and he lost his health and his body was covered with boils. And you remember in Job 2.9, she said, will you keep your integrity? Just curse God and die. And you remember what Job said in verse 10. You speak as a foolish woman. Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not difficulty? And then this statement. It's a prescriptive statement. Descriptive, prescriptive, both. It says this. And in all of this, Job did not sin with his mouth. The implication is clear. If he had railed against God, if he had been disappointed with God, if he had been angry with God, if he had accused God, he would have sinned. But at least at this point, he did not. I think when you, I, we face a difficult time, we can cry out to the Lord. We can beg God to do a miracle. We can express dismay. And we can be perplexed. And we can ask God to bring peace, and to change the circumstances. All of that is well within bounds. But I don't think we have the right to challenge the integrity of God, the goodness of God, the perfection of God, the perfect knowledge, the perfect power of God, the sovereignty of God, the love of God, the justice of God. I think when we attack any of his attributes, we have gone too far. Growing in love for God, even in the midst of affliction, can happen when we say, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I'm hurting. I need a miracle. I need a touch. And in the midst of tragedy or death, <coughs> calamity, we can see God work and, and he can begin to stretch and grow us. The first commandment is to love God. The first way that you and I are to develop the fruit of the spirit of love, agape, is to preeminently love the Lord. The second is likened unto the first, to love our neighbor as ourself. Again, we ask, who's our neighbor? Surely it's not somebody who thinks differently, acts differently, even acts opposed to the things of God. Surely that is not one's neighbor. Surely that's not who I need to love. And yet we remember in Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. We learned something about a neighbor, right? We have a Jew who is going down and he is beaten. He is bludgeoned. He is left for dead. He's been mugged. 
And a Samaritan comes by. And because the Jew is in need, he becomes the neighbor. The Samaritan immediately recognizes somebody in need as his neighbor. These guys have nothing in common. Nothing. Tragically, a Jew was raised to hate a Samaritan. Tragically, a Samaritan was hated or was trained to hate a Jew. They didn't share a religious belief either. You remember the Samaritans rejected almost all of the Bible. They only accepted the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy because the rest of the Bible is too Jewish. So they rejected it. They rejected most of the God of Scripture. They didn't share a place to worship. God had said, build a temple in Jerusalem. And the Jews did. And the Samaritans weren't welcome. Oh, not by God, but by the Jews. And you remember what the Samaritans did? They built a rival temple in Mount Gerizim. And you remember the two groups took turns desecrating each other's temples. In fact, the Jews actually destroyed the temple at Mount Gerizim, causing them to call the mountain a temple rather than the building they had constructed. Jews would perfectly go around Samaria. And Samaritans didn't leave Mount Gerizim. There were a million strong in the time of Jesus. About 800 today, 600 still live in Mount Gerizim. They don't venture out. You couldn't find two groups that are more opposed to one another. And yet when the Samaritan came across the Jew who needed help, (coughs) the Samaritan immediately realized, that is my neighbor. Who are we to love? Others, our neighbors. How much? As we love ourselves. Again, that 15th century German theologian, Dutch theologian, Thomas Akempis said, whoever agapes much does much. That is love. What might that look like? I'll offer a few thoughts. The first thing is, I believe our neighbor is anyone who needs to hear salvation by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Who do you know that is placing their faith in their own good works or some kind of ritual who needs to hear about Jesus, that we are sinners in need of saving all of us, and Jesus died on the cross as a payment of our sin, was buried, and on the third day, He rose again, and he offers salvation for all who by faith receive him. Who do you know that needs to be invited to church where they'll hear the gospel? Who needs to hear Romans 10, 9 and 10? If we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, declared righteous, And with a mouth one confesses and is saved. Our neighbor whom we are to love as we love ourselves is anyone who does not know Christ. Second, as I think of loving my neighbor, 
That doesn't mean I compromise my beliefs. We get this wrong sometimes. We have this mantra that to love someone means to accept the sin that they're in and to call sin righteous. That's not loving anyone. That's self-protection. That's being politically correct. That's making sure nobody gets in my grill, in my face. But that's not loving God preeminently. To love God preeminently means that even if a family member disagrees, even if a spouse disagrees, even if a child or a grandchild disagrees, I'm going to love God by honoring his word, honoring his morality, honoring his ethics. I love God above all else. And then love my neighbor. It is not loving to allow sin to be called righteousness. It's not loving to redefine immorality or a lack of ethics or idolatry as acceptable. That's giving people false hope who will one day face a God, a judgment God. To love means to, to love God's word, to live it out, but to do so with grace. Third, to love means to forgive others. This fruit stuff is, is kind of difficult. I think of what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43 to 46. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. If we're going to really love others, we're going to forgive. Colossians 3.13 says this, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against you, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. To the degree in which God has forgiven me. Oh, that is a massive degree. To that degree, I am to learn to forgive others. I think of Romans 12.18 as far as it depends on you, Jeff, live at peace one with another. So loving means telling people about the Lord. Loving means that I'm not going to compromise biblical truth, but I'm going to live it out with grace. Loving means I'm going to forgive those, I think, who wrong me, whether they ask for it or not, I know there's a theological debate. You do not have to forgive those who don't ask for it. But in Luke 23, 43, Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And I'm to be an imitator of Christ. And finally, to love means do tangible acts. As Thomas Akempis said, agape love is doing much. Maybe it's shoveling a driveway for somebody who can't. Maybe it's contacting somebody who got sick, sending a card, giving a call. Maybe it's making a box for Operation Christmas Child or sending a card to a missionary. Maybe it is helping out at a local school. 
What is the tangible thing that God wants you, wants me, wants us to do in the lives of others? The first fruit that God needs to develop in us as we work side by side with him. Salvation is an act of God. Justification is an act of God. But sanctification, the process of becoming more and more like Christ, that's God working in and through us. We're talking about sanctification. And the fruit of the Spirit needs God, his Spirit working in us. But it requires us memorizing Scripture that would help us to put on a fruit, having accountability in our lives, reading material and learning material that corresponds to areas where we have challenge. Which of the fruit would God want you, me, us, individual, different for all of us, what one or two fruits, what one or two works of the flesh would God want you, me, us to attack in the next 10 weeks? Let's do it. Let's do it empowered by God's Spirit. Father God, guide each of us to that work of the flesh that is particularly vile in our lives that needs addressing enough of our excuses work in us. And Father, what one or two fruit, what would you desire to build in each of us? Allow those to rise to the top for us to get serious and empower us by your spirit. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.